Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. In last week's lecture, I emphasized that there were two focuses of the Fourth Lateran Council, crusade and reform. Um, reform of the church. And I, and I did that through going through Innocent's Sermon. We're going to return back to Innocent's Sermon that opened the Fourth Lateran Council, but what I'm going to focus on today is reform. So the second one of those, of those two emphases. The, the next one I'll deal with next week. So that'll be when we get to crusades and heresy and all the stuff, the controversial stuff. So, um, so just to name a few of the enactments that the Fourth Lateran Council uh, made in regard to reform, we have Canon 6, which states that the regular, that regular provincial councils were to be held primarily for the reform of clerical morals. Canon 7, that prelates should take care to correct the offenses of those under them. Canon 8, inquests into wrongdoing must be both diligent and fair. Canon 10, bishops must provide their people with preachers. Canons 11 and 27, bishops must provide their priests with an education. Canon 14, incontinent clerics are to be punished and suspended. Um, Canon 15, clergy are not to be drunks. This is one of my favorites because it offers us a little glimpse into daily life when it actually states, it's a quote, accordingly we decree that that abuse is to be entirely abolished, whereby in some places drinkers bind themselves to drink equal amounts, and the man is most praised who makes the most people drunk and himself drains the deepest cups. So it seems drinking games are, well, are, are fully in play in the 13th century. It's probably a cultural constant. Um, <clears throat> Canon 16 has to do with moderate dress among, cler among clerics. Canon 17, that they shouldn't feast inordinately. Canon 63 is against simony. Canon 66, against the avarice of clerics. These sorts of things go on and on. Um, the council also reformed the way the sacraments were handled, mandating that altars and liturgical uh, instruments be clean and that the chrism and the Eucharist be kept locked up. It, um, Canon 21 famously mandated that everyone go to confession and receive the Eucharist at least once a year. One of its most famous canons. Um, and these types of canons go on and on, and they are complemented by many canons concerning canonical legal procedure. So for, in all, there are 71 canons or enactments, and most of them we would fit under the general category of the reform of the church. And what I want us to see today is how these are all connected, how the worldview that I discussed last week is present in these canons as what binds them together as a coherent whole rather than just a simple list. In order to get at this, I have to first recap some of what I spoke about last week. And what I tried to show was how this worldview was rooted in a certain approach to scripture, that of the four senses. And what I argued is that the four senses, the literal, the allegorical, the tropological, and the anagogical, were not understood as four parallel interpretations of Scripture, but rather they were understood as stages in an ascent toward perfection and contemplation. So the literal sense, which is, was more commonly referred to as the historical sense, consisted of the events of salvation history. It was the who, what, where, and when of Revelation. This was the exterior content of God's revelation. It's the actual physical things and events, and they were accessible to everyone. When the temple is, is mentioned in the Old Testament, the literal or historical sense is the actual physical building in Jerusalem. The allegorical sense built on the historical. The allegorical sense was based on the premise held in faith that Christ was the definitive and complete self-revelation of God. This means that through Christ, we can understand history because all the revelation of history, all the acts of God through things and events must be included within this definitive self-revelation, which is Christ, who is Christ. So the historical, read completely through the allegorical, consists of, um, constituted the full content of revelation. But the, allegor the allegorical, you'll recall, was the first spiritual sense. It required in the reader the theological virtue of faith. 
One's ability to see and understand how all history points to Christ was dependent on one's faith in Christ, one's understanding of who he is. And this faith was a product of grace. This is why the allegorical is the first scriptural or a spiritual sense and not just a layer onto the historical. The tropolo- after the allegorical sense comes the tropological sense, otherwise known as the moral sense. However, as I pointed out last week, the moral sense was not simply the moral of the story. It's not the product of turning history into a parable or a fable or something like that to teach us a lesson. That's a misunderstanding of what it means. Um, The tropological properly understood was the product of the interiorization of the allegorical sense, which I just described, including completely within it the historical sense, right? So the tropological sense was the product of conforming oneself to Christ. It was about being turned into a person for whom the law of charity was not proscriptive, not a law that told you what to do, but rather descriptive. The law of charity, when interiorized, described who one was, right? I love my neighbor not because it's the law, but because I've become the type of person who sees in him an object of love, right? It was about conversion to Christ. So if Christ is the lens through which the full content of the faith becomes accessible, we can see how the extent that you are like Christ, to the extent that you are like Christ, you see the true meaning of Scripture, because you are the type of person for whom that meaning is familiar. It's like you. (laughs) But more than that, your very life, being conformed to Christ, is a manifestation of that meaning. It was a subjective sense. It was the living sense, and so the ecclesial sense, which is the way they'd sometimes describe it. The tropological sense, properly understood, was the scripture preached in both deeds and words. It was the lived scripture. And so it corresponded to the virtue of charity. Charity, like faith, is an infused theological virtue, and so the tropological required grace. So what I'm going to, tr- what I'm going to try and show today is that the immense reform activity of Lateran IV can be profitably understood through this notion of tropology because reform was really just another word for conversion, for confirmation to Christ. Now in this movement from the historical to the allegorical to the tropological, we can see the ascending nature of the senses. They were not parallel, but rather mounted. They built toward perfection. And the perfection, and that perfection that they built towards was the anagogical sense of Scripture. And the anagogical sense was Scripture's complete and full understanding. In its perfection, it was union with Christ in perfect contemplation. And this is heaven. From, and from heaven, all is clear, right? all is understood. The anagogical sense of Scripture was therefore something that was always just out of reach in this life. To the extent that someone understood allegory through faith, and interiorized it through charity, one achieved the anagogical sense. One was capable of encountering the word of God in its full simplicity, right, as a a communion of oneself with him. This was the telos of both scripture and the spiritual life. It was the thing that drove one forward deeper into the mysteries, and it was dependent on the theological virtue of hope. You'll recall this diagram from last week. I drew it on the board. History is the foundation. History is is that which is accessible to all. Allegory and tropology are the two avenues of ascent, and they are directly related to each other. As one comes to understanding, one comes to desire to interiorize. And as one interiorizes, one is capable of greater understanding. Where this understanding and this interiorization are congruent, we find anagogy, a unity of the will and the intellect. The whole thing moves towards perfect anagogy, which is contemplation. Throughout all of this, the object of focus is Christ himself. It's Christ in history, Christ in oneself and one's neighbor, Christ in heaven. You'll recall also from last week that I explained that this pattern was repeated over and over again in different aspects of high medieval thought and society. Everywhere you look, you see this pattern of ascent from the simply material. And you'll recall that I argued that this was profoundly liturgical and sacramental, that this was the deep structure, the basic repeating pattern of a fractal and liturgical universe or cosmos. 
What I hope to explore today is how the reforms of Lateran IV fit into an attempt to affect a tropological reform that they, were, that they were an attempt to move the faithful further up the ascent toward anagogy. So in the century and a half leading up to Lateran IV, which was in 1215, reform was on everyone's lips. Reform was, we might say, the buzzword of the period. Everyone was talking about reform in a similar way that for the last couple hundred years, everyone's been talking about freedom. But what did reform mean? Right, that's the question. We tend to think of reform as having to do with cleaning something up, of getting rid of corruption and making things better. For example, we, we might want to reform the city council here in Steubenville. But it meant more than that in the 12th century. Reform was directly connected to salvation. What was lost in Eden was to be restored, was to be reformed. Man was to be reformed in the image of God. The saints in heaven were the perfectly reformed. Latter and four was the culmination of a massive reform movement. And in order to understand it, we must start in the monasteries because this is where, the, where it came from. So it spills out of the monasteries and really seizes the imagination of Christendom, culminating in Lateran IV. So where I want to start is the monastery of Cluny in France. Cluny was at the heart of the monastic reform movement. It had an immense influence, but what I'm going to describe here is really applicable to a lot of different places in Europe. It's not unique to Cluny. Um, so to the monks, the monastery was the temple, the dwelling place of God. The scholar Jennifer, Jennifer Harris has pointed out that the liturgical rite used for the dedication of Cluny and other monasteries directly associated the monastery with Solomon's temple. It, it used especially 1 Kings chapter 8, which tells the story of Solomon's dedication of the temple and the movement of the uh, Ark of the Covenant to it, the housing of the Ark within it. So the temple is the house of the Lord, the place where the tablets of the old covenant were kept. And Cluny was now the temple of the new covenant, still the, the dwelling place of God, only now a dwelling place that was no longer uh, restricted and provisional, but was rather fulfilled and realized in the mysteries that were practiced on the altar and in the hearts of the monks where the new law was written, right? So the monastery was a temple of the new law. Now I'd like to remind you about a point that I made last week about the liturgy as the perfect manifestation of the dynamic of ascent from the historical to the anagogical. In it, or in it, it, uh, it was in the liturgy that the historical was read through Christ, that it was internalized uh, in the people in both bodily action and prayer, as well as the preaching of the gospel. And finally, in the Eucharist, all converged perfectly on Christ, and all were integrated mystically into his body. Cluny was the temple because Cluny was a place of precisely this liturgical dynamic of ascent, and it was a dynamic that encompassed all of the monks' lives. Most of the monks arrived at the abbey as children, boys from about the age of seven, were offered to the monastery by their parents. They grew up there and spent their entire lives training to be monks. And this training was first and foremost liturgical training. Their lives were consumed with the liturgy. The boys were educated so that they could study the scripture and the liturgical texts, especially the Psalms, the singing of which consumed much of the monks' time. But their training was not understood as simply a functional necessity. Rather, the vocation for which they were, tra they were trained was the pursuit of perfection in contemplation. This training consisted of the interiorization of the scripture and liturgical texts, as well as those of the rules that governed life in the monastery. They started, we might say, in the historical and were led through the course of their training into the allegorical and then uh, through the interiorization of the faith into the tropological and on to contemplation in the anagogical. And to see this, we can look at the way they approach scripture. You might be familiar with a practice called Lexio Divina. And the practice that we're familiar with today is a direct descendant of the practices of the Benedictine monks like those of Cluny, although, although slightly different. At its core, um, in the period I'm talking about, uh, was a, type, a certain type of memorization. They read the scripture, was it, which was at first outside of themselves, um, a text on a page, so that they might memorize it. Now, 
they didn't understand memorization the way we do. We tend to think of memory as a sort of hard drive. You store things in it, and then when you need it, you go back and retrieve it. Right? They, on the other hand, understood memorization as the practice of making the scripture a part of who they actually were. Um, try to describe this, of bringing scripture into oneself to conform oneself to the text so that the scripture became the very content of their characters, their, of their personalities. So first there was the actual reading of the text. This was rooted in the literal sense, maturing into an allegorical understanding, an understanding of the data of revelation, we might say. The next step was meditation. They described meditation as eating the text, of chewing on it, swallowing it, and digesting it. This was the process of making it a part of who they were. This is the move into tropology. When Christ, understood through the text, was interiorized and one conformed oneself to him. This was memorization. This is what they meant by memorization. And, but they did, in fact, memorize the texts, even in our own sense. There are recorded remarkable feats of monks being able to do things like recite the scripture backwards. And they can do such things because the text was not simply data in their heads, but was actually a part of who they were. In the same sort of way that you or I could start anywhere in our lives and tell our story, or, um, or we could tell our personal story backwards, or we could jump around from one age to the next and then back again and move freely through our, our own narrative. Um, so that's the way the mature monks could range freely through scripture. Once they had achieved memorization through meditation, the scripture was not just the story of salvation history, it was their personal story of salvation. It was who they were. So the spiritual life and the scriptural life achieved unification in the monks themselves. This was the goal. So, but the next step in the process then is prayer. And this was the realization of their interiorization, and it meant, above all else, liturgy, which was the main work of the monks. In the liturgy, the scripture that had been interiorized in the monks poured out into practice. Through the liturgy, they lived salvation history over again. When the monks sang the psalms, it was Israel itself, itself now perfect, perfected, that was singing the psalms. History broke into the perpetual now of the monastery. And at its peak, at Cluny, the choir virtually never stopped singing. They actually had to go in shifts. But the ultimate liturgical event was the Eucharist. Uh, the Mass was at the very center of the monks' lives. It was, of course, through the Mass that Christ himself was incorporated into the bodies of the monks. And it was through the Eucharist that the grace that their entire life depended on, the grace that drove the entire movement of their lives, flowed into the community. The anagogical was, as we have seen, the goal of Scripture. It was both Scripture's full understanding and it was the final confirmation of the individual will to the will of Christ. It was contemplation, and contemplation was the final step in the Lectio Divina process. It was the goal of the entire monastic life, because, uh, because it was, at its perfection, nothing else than salvation, which is union with God. We can see, then, that the stages of Lectio Divina, reading, meditation, prayer, contemplation, were the lived movement from the historical to the allegorical to the tropological and finally to the anagogical. The monastery was a microcosm of all salvation history, and salvation hi history itself followed a pattern of dynamic ascent that was found everywhere because it was ultimately rooted in the Trinitarian mystery and the mystery of the redemption, of our redemption through the incarnation. This means that the monastery was an attempt at a perfect a perfectly ordered cosmos. It was an attempt at a redeemed, converted, perfectly Christian society. And the fractal nature of this, of this reality is clearly on display. The monastery itself is the temple of God, but so is the individual monk, right? The whole life of the monk follows this pattern, but so does every time they sit down with the Bible, right? So, uh, you know, God dwelled equally in all of those things. So, and so the whole society was liturgical. Um, in the ideal, the monk, over the course of his entire life of training, would internalize the scripture and the liturgical text to such a degree that he simply was a liturgical person, that his entire life became an act of worship. The letter of the scripture faded away as it was memorized and interiorized, and the rubrics and texts of the liturgy did the same. In the same way, the rule of the order was interiorized. 
so that the, the rhythm and life of the monastery was the very rhythm of the interior life of the monk, which was the very rhythm of reality, analogic, uh, analogically connected to the life of the Trinity. So this is ultimately, ultimately what it meant for the monastery to be a temple, right? all of this together. It was understood that this perfect society was properly the society that all Christians were called to through their baptism. And the laity very much wanted to be a part of the salvation of the monks. And the way they did so was by building and populating monasteries, thousands of monasteries all over Europe. The life at Cluny, and there, it's a lay movement, right? I mean, the laity build it, the laity populate it. That's something to always keep in mind about this. Um, the life at Cluny uh, and other reformed monasteries served as a model for the thousands of new foundations and for the reforming of older houses, and they spread everywhere. They became the cultural heart of Christendom. And the reason, now, the reason why I've spent so much time discussing the Benedictine reform movement uh, is because over the 12th century, leading up to the council, its ideal was extended to the church as a whole. You'll remember that Pope Innocent III, in his sermon opening Lateran IV, uh, what I talked about last week, referred to the whole church as the temple, and that that was what needed to be reformed. And this is, so this is a total vision that Innocent's presenting. And to understand it, we need to first see how the vision of the Benedictine movement became the vision of the papacy. <clears throat> the first half of the 11th century was a low point for the papacy. It was corrupt and it was embroiled in the local politics of powerful royal uh, Roman noble families. Its reform, though, um, came with the reign of Pope Leo IX, who started in 1049. As a bishop, Leo had shown great enthusiasm for the monastic reform and had worked vigorously to spread it throughout his diocese. When he came to Rome as an outsider, and his project was to clean up the papacy, that's why he was brought, he brought with him an entourage of reformers, mostly monks from reformed monasteries, including monks from Cluny itself. Leo was followed in the chair of Peter by a series of reforming popes, including the famous Gregory VII, who had, who had been a monk at Cluny. He left Cluny to go, to go to Rome. And it's after Gregory that the papal reform movement ultimately takes its name as the Gregorian Reform. And the Gregorian Reform is properly under, understood, I think, um, as an extension of the ideal of the reformed monastic houses to the clergy as a whole. The Gregorian reform sought to stamp out simony and clerical marriage, for example. They did a lot, but those two important things. The simony was the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices, and both it and marriage were targeted for the same reason. Um, both practices bound the clergy to the world of politics, to the world of wealth, of economics, of, of property, even of war. Um, and both practices embroiled the clergy in a life that complicated the ascent toward perfection. And both practices, the popes believed, compromised the clergy's ability to leave the faithful as a whole to salvation. So the animating thought of the Gregorian reform is very simple. The life of the monastery was nothing short of the pursuit of salvation. And this pursuit was the proper pursuit of all the baptized. Ought not all of the church be reformed as the Benedictine houses had been? Shouldn't all Christian lives take on the dynamic of the march toward the anagogical, toward salvation? Like the lives of the monks, shouldn't the whole world be turned into one giant and perpetual act of liturgy? The answer to the Gregorian popes was absolutely yes. And this reform had to start with the clergy because it was the clergy who mediated the grace to the church that the whole process of ascent depended upon. Through the Gregorian popes, the worldview that drove the reform of the monasteries was transferred to the papacy itself. But one of the things we have to understand about this notion of reform is that it is, it is a notion of perpetual reform. The monks in the monastery never stopped reforming themselves. Uh, contemplation was the goal of their lives, and they approached it, but its a final achievement was reserved for the next life, when they would, when the, in the next life, of course, when they would see God face to face. So the notion of reform that we see coming out of the Gregorian papacy was therefore not simply the correcting of flagrant abuses. It was rather the notion of the perpetual movement of ascent toward perfection for the church as a whole. 
This reform would never be complete because this reform was nothing other than the very life of the believer. It was the very process of salvation history, the process of the senses of Scripture, of the spiritual life, and it most perfectly, of course, exemplified to them in the monastic life. So this notion of reform and its dream of a worldwide um, conversion spread throughout Christendom. It captured the imagination throughout Christendom. You'll recall from last week's lecture that I emphasized the fractal nature of the fourfold vision of ascent. And we can, you know, what that means is that we can zoom in to the very interior life of the believer or zoom out to the structure of the universe itself. And at any point, we see the pattern hold. This is true for the reform, reform movement itself. It took on itself, it took on the pattern. And so the Cluniacs and related monasteries had focused heavily on exterior performance of the liturgy and on the formal order of the monastic life. But as the reform movement matured, increasingly people viewed their focus on exterior performance to be problematic for the cultivation of the interior life. There started to be complaints that their layers upon layers of rules and internal customs, which were designed, of course, to conform the monk to the life of the monastery, were somehow obscuring the object of true conversion, who was Christ himself. This was the line of thinking that, that led to the establishment of the Cistercians. We might think of the Cistercians as the reform movement's shift from the allegorical to the tropological, and the Cistercians were the masters of the tropological sense of scripture. They focused on the interior life, on the total conforming of oneself to Christ. Nevertheless, this focus on the interior life included the traditional monastic practices of Lexio Divina and the focus on the liturgy because the Cistercians were not replacing one form of monasticism with another. Rather, they saw themselves as reforming monasticism in the sense of reform that I just described, right? a reform of ascent. St. Bernard of Clairvaux was, of course, the great Cistercian of the period. And his tropological commentaries and sermons are archetypical of the movement. And his spirituality was profoundly focused on the interior ascent to God. The Cistercians are crucial for understanding this entire reform movement, but we have time here only to deal with a couple points. First, we can see with the Cistercians the further development of this notion of the possibility of the reform of the entire world. This might seem counterintuitive because one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Cistercians was that they sought to establish their houses, their houses as far into the wilderness as geography and demography would allow. But they did this because what they were seeking to build were self-sufficient communities directed toward perfection. Rather than being integrated into the political and economic systems of the world, the Cistercians attempted to build their own internal economic and governmental systems that were integrated fully into the monastic life. The monks themselves worked the fields, but they also introduced large numbers of lay brothers. These were men who took vows of chastity and obedience and who, practiced in, who participated in the liturgical life of the monastery, but whose primary vocation was labor rather than prayer. They worked in the fields. They were blacksmiths, tanners, glazers, thatchers, fishermen, whatever the monastery needed to be self-sufficient. Now, the reason why this is very significant is because what the Cistercians are showing is a conviction that the temporal life of humanity can be conformed toward perfection. They were attempting to extend the microcosm of the monastery to include all the functions of life. This is an extension of the dynamic of ascent to include more of the historical, more of the things and worldly activities of this life. I would say that within the interpretive scheme of the four senses, this was an extension of the tropological, the interiorization of the gospel. This was a vision clearly compatible with the Gregorian reform. They're not really separable. The second thing I want to point out with the Cistercians is their importance they placed on preaching. Last week, I emphasized how the tropological sense was the first subjective sense. This means that, properly speaking, the tropological sense of Scripture is the living of Scripture. The tropological, as we have seen, was the conforming of one's inner self to the gospel, and Christ both did and taught. This means that the tropological sense was manifested in right living and in preaching. 
I think we see this clearly in the Cistercian experience. The cultivation of the inner man was accompanied by preaching, normally to each other in chapter. And this is not preaching as catechesis. Rather, through this preaching, they made the word of God present, and they were brought higher into the tropological, both the preacher and those listening to what he preached. As St. Bernard remarked in the midst of a sermon, sometimes, even during the sermon, it seems to me that I can actually feel the burning fervor of your hearts. For the more plentifully you suck out the milk of the word, the more abundantly does the Holy Spirit replenish my breasts, and the more speedily you swallow down what is offered, the more copious the supplies given to me for your nourishment. Now, I know this kind of language might make us a little uncomfortable, but this is because this is really because of our own, our society's sort of gender confusions and our ironically Puritan sensibilities. They didn't have, they didn't share those, right? They had no problem um, whatsoever with this sort of, using this, these sorts of analogies. And it was extremely common for the Cistercians to refer to the preacher as a mother nursing her baby. And the reason is because that's an example of total life-giving love. Right? It's charity at its most simple and most beautiful. And, and so there is a, you know, it really, it's tropological at its most, tropology at its most clear. And this is why they use the image to describe the scripture coming alive in the preacher's words and, and being imparted to the, believer, to the believers who are listening. So this understanding of preaching, then, this notion of what we might call tropological preaching, was properly understood as the words and the actions of those that had already made and I have to be, you have to excuse me for this expression, but the tropological term, that is to say, those who had ascended deep into the, into the tropological and were moving into the anagogical. And this makes sense if we stop to think about it. To the same extent that someone had con, uh, conformed himself to Christ through the interiorization of the gospel, to that extent, his words and actions were perfectly congruent with the words and actions of Christ himself. And so to the same extent, he made Christ present. Reform of life was therefore more than just a prerequisite for preaching. It was a different expression of preaching. Deeds and words, intellect and will, came together in the ascent toward perfection. And this ascent happened only through the cooperation with grace. In the understanding of the 12th century, every Christian had available to them the grace necessary to pursue perfection. But through holy orders, the ordained were given special grace and allowed, that allowed the word of God to pour out through them into the life of the church in a special way. The reform of the clergy then was an imperative of the whole reform movement. We saw this already when I mentioned the Gregorian papacy's initiatives against simony and clerical marriage. To the reforming popes, like the monks, a priest had to become a temple of God so that he might turn the world into a temple of God. Motivated by this impulse, throughout the 12th century, more and more clergy came together to live in community as chapters, normally attached to a cathedral or another important church, and follow, following a modified version of the Augustinian rule. <clears throat> These priests became known as regular canons, most of them did, and their focus was on the cure of souls, on the pastoral care of the laity through the sacraments and through preaching. It was understood that in order for them to be able to effectively make Christ present, they needed to make him present first in their own hearts. And this is what the life and community, according to a rule, was designed to accomplish. It directly comes out of the monasteries. But the canons lived in the heart of the cities and ministered directly to the laity. If with the Cistercians we can see an attempt to bring all of the world into the monastery, I think with the regular canons, we can start to see the notion of bringing the perfection of the monastery out into the world. We can see how these seemingly contradictory applications of the reforming impulse, one inward and one outward, are in fact, at root, two expressions of the same imperative, to convert the world. Preaching was at the center of this clerical movement, and we see an explosion of it in the 12th century. The preaching in both life and word, however, required preparation. One had to ascend deep into the intellectual and spiritual life. One had to come to know and understand the scripture, which as we have seen over and over again, meant knowing Christ, who is the definitive meaning of scripture. And one had to progress in the moral life. It was for these purposes 
that the cathedral schools and ultimately the universities of Europe were founded and spread through Europe. They were a part of the same reforming impulse. This <clears throat> a second. It was in the second half of the 12th and the first half of the 13th century, so precisely in the period of Lateran IV, that the universities formed in Europe. But these universities were oriented not to abstract knowledge for the sake of speculation, nor, for the nor were they primarily concerned with the performance of jobs that required specialized skills. Rather, more than anything else, they were concerned with preaching. As meditation on the scripture led the monk to a perfection revolving around liturgical prayer, wherein a monk's entire life became a sort of liturgical worship, so the study and disputation of scripture in the schools culminated in preaching, which was aimed at bringing the church into the same sort of perfection, contemplative perfection. Peter the Chanter, who was a professor of the young Innocent III, wrote that the exercise of sacred scripture consists in three activities, in reading, disputation, and preaching. We are very right to see a direct connection between this sequence and the sequence of monastic development, from reading to meditation and prayer and on to contemplation. They both track with the four senses of scripture and with development in the spiritual life. Alan of Lille, a famous Cistercian master at the University of Paris, also a, a master of Innocent III's, almost certainly, described preaching itself as nothing short of a man's perfection, a perfection that was reached through both intellectual and moral progress. This is the heart of the notion of tropology, and preaching was understood as the crowning achievement of the theologian. Indeed, theologians studied and expounded upon the scriptures in order to make them alive to their fellow men through preaching. The universities were part of the infrastructure of reform, of the extension of the perfection of the monastery into the whole church, in order to graduate, you had to preach a sermon. Right? You didn't write a paper. That's the way it worked. So, again, we can see how movements as seemingly diverse as the Benedictine reform, the Cistercian reform, the formation of the regular canons, and the formation of the universities are really different expressions of the same reforming zeal, which was itself a living out of the fourfold ascent towards contemplation. What I've been describing is the clerical reform movement that mounted through the long 12th century. Pope Innocent III was a product of this movement. The reform that the Pope advanced at Lateran IV was the culmination of the movement. We see this clearly in Innocent's description of reform in his opening sermon on the meaning of the Passover that I spent so much time discussing last week. You'll recall that Innocent described the reform of the church as the spiritual Passover that follows the physical Passover. Reform was the tropological Passover, the moral Passover into the life of charity. Following Ezekiel 9 in his opening sermon, Innocent describes the preacher as the man dressed in white linen, which signifies his honest habits and good works. He carries an inkhorn filled with the knowledge given by the Holy Spirit and marked a towel on the foreheads of the faithful with the ink of doctrine, which was applied with the pen of the tongue on the parchment of their hearts. In Innocent's opening sermon, it was those marked, those so marked by the preacher, who would celebrate the eternal Passover, which was the anagogical Passover. This mark, Innocent tells us, is nothing other than the mark of Revelation 14.1, which states, Then I looked, and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And this anagogical Passover, you will remember, was anticipated here in the Eucharist. It was experienced by the faithful in the microcosm of the Mass. This was the end of Innocent's sermon, the anagogical sense of the Passover. To Innocent and the council, it was the preacher who did the marking. He's the middle term. It was the preacher who brought the people into direct contact with the living Lord and brought them from, merely histor from the merely historical into the spiritual. This involved conversion of heart, the conforming of oneself to Christ, a which is a confirmation that reached perfection in and was only possible because of the Eucharist. The preacher's activity in the world, then, was ordered toward the Eucharist in Innocent's mind and through it to salvation, to the eternal liturgy of the city of God. 
This was the tropological movement toward the anagogical. I described last week how the scheme of the four senses was ultimately liturgical and Eucharistic. Today we have seen how the monks lived the four senses and how their lives were profoundly liturgical and Eucharistic. This liturgical dimension remains present in the clerical reforms of Lateran IV. Lateran IV's conception of preaching must be, it must be understood in relation to the Eucharist. In fact, Innocent equated the preaching of the gospel and the mass with the preaching of Christ himself. The priests were the mediators between God and man. They continued Christ's mission to do and to preach through both his words and actions. For example, in Innocent's exposition of the spiritual senses of the vestments of the priests of the Old Testament, which he asserts are figures for the vestments of the New Testament, he states that the pomegranates and gold bells of the fringes of the robe are to be understood as works and preaching, and that, quote, the two ought to be joined in the priest, lest without these entering the sanctuary he might die. For Jesus began to do and to teach, leaving an example for priests that they might follow his steps, who did not sin and was honest in life, neither was guile found in his mouth, end of quote. To innocent, to do and to preach formed a unity because the incarnational Christ himself in both his words and his actions, was the word of God. And it was the, this complete word of God that the priest had to interiorize, had to conform himself to. Christ's doing and preaching culminated in his sacrifice on the cross, and the priests culminated with the same sacrifice on the altar. Pope Innocent said of himself, First I am held to give the food of example, then the food of the word, that worthily I may give the food of the sacrament. Because Jesus began to do and to teach, leaving us an example that we may follow his footsteps. The doings and the teachings, excuse me. <coughs> the doings and the teachings of Christ remained unified in a single man, his priest. The priest had to be a virtuous man, the moral man, the man who had ascended from the historical through the allegorical and to the tropological. This was the imperative that had grown out of the monasteries, and it was what drove Lateran IV's clerical reform. <clears throat> Excuse me. To the Council Fathers, then, this proclamation of the Word of God through preaching was not simply instruction. It made Christ present, and like confecting the, confecting the Eucharist, it required the sacrament of holy orders. As Innocent states, Christ, through his preachers, sends the gospel unto the letter that kills, because it is the spirit that quickens. And so we see that preaching the word of God was a grace, a gift from the Holy Spirit, through which the clergy participated in God speaking of himself through his word. Such inspired preaching, Innocent stated, builds faith, increases hope, and reinforces charity. It is the road of life, the ladder of salvation, the gate of paradise. We see here the entire movement of ascent. Preaching the, preaching the tropological sense of scripture was nothing short to innocent than the very lives of the priests, as it had been the lives of the monks in the Benedictine reform movement. The priests made the word of God present in their deeds, in their words, and on the altar. The three were inseparable. And it was through them that the, the, the world um, as a whole would ascend toward communion with God. They were the key to the total reform. <coughs> Excuse me. Clerical reform was imperative because a priest who failed to both do and to teach had not conformed himself to Christ and therefore undermined the mission of the church. This was so serious to innocent uh, that to innocent, the immor immorality of the clergy was the means by which all evils principally entered into the people. And he said, quote, faith perishes, religion is deformed, liberty is confounded, justice is crushed, heretics spring forth, schismatics grow insolent, the perfidious rage and the agarines, it was a term for the Muslims, prevail. Canon 10 of the council states, that the nourishment of God's word is recognized to be especially necessary for the salvation of the Christian people, because man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
In their failure, priests undermined the church and therefore Christ's redemptive mission. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Indeed, as Innocent said, if the head should be infirm, the whole body will languish. We can see then why Canon 26 on the confirmation of Episcopal election states, there is nothing more harmful to God's church than for unworthy prelates to be entrusted with the government of souls. Also, we can see the profound connection between the canons concerning the morality, education, sacramental duties, and preaching of the clergy. The council mandated regional synods to reform the morals of priests, and bishops were instructed to appoint men to appoint men to carry out with profit this duty of sacred preaching, men who are powerful in both word and deed, who would build up the people entrusted to them by word and example. These men, the council asserts, were to carry out not only the office of preaching, but also that of hearing confessions and enjoining penances and other matters which were conducive to the salvation of souls. It is these canons that are so often seen as the foundation for the missions of the Franciscans and the Dominicans, missions which, which must be seen as the culmination of the move toward extending the monastery into the whole world. And both, both of these missions, of course, were set in motion by none other than Pope Innocent III, both Dominic and Francis. As we have seen over the course of the last two lectures, the movement of ascent through the senses was only possible because of grace. This is what made them the spiritual senses. But this did not preclude the work, uh, the work of a person who would so ascend. The monks spent a lifetime memorizing and meditating on the scripture, as well as internalizing the liturgy through, uh, through near constant prayer. This was their cooperation with grace, this labor. This was their labor. The universities were being built precisely to similarly, yet differently, prepare preachers. It was this type of preparation that Lateran IV demanded. Canon 11 of Lateran IV therefore declared that every major church must have a theologian to teach scripture and all things involving the cure of souls. They were also to have a grammarian to teach eloquence. But this education was only a prerequisite to the performance of the office of preaching. Knowledge had to be turned into the virtues of wisdom and eloquence and combined with integrity and faith and hope and charity in order that a preacher might be formed. The tropological corresponded to the infused virtue of charity, and the preacher had to make the tropological turn, the movement toward contemplation. This required grace, grace that was received through the sacraments, and especially in their case through holy orders. When Innocent wrote that the preacher needed to possess wisdom, eloquence, and integrity, that he might understand what he says and do what he understands, he was paraphrasing the rite of priestly ordination. This was how it was possible. Preaching was the word component of Christ's mission of word, example, and sacrifice, and was necessarily a clerical activity. Both those who denied the sacerdotal power of confecting the Eucharist and those who usurped the office of preaching were therefore declared by the council to be heretics. These errors were two manifestations of the same error, which ultimately was a challenge to the incarnational and sacramental vision of the ascent that had underwritten all of our discussions up to this point. The many, the many canons that have to do with canonical cases and procedures ought to be read similarly. The administering of preaching and the sacraments was so important that unworthy men had to be removed and, the worthy, and worthy men had to be protected from false accusations. This is what the reform of canonical procedure promulgated by the council was primarily all about. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that the construction of canon law as a means toward a coherent system of governance for which Lateran IV was so instrumental must be viewed ultimately as an attempt to extend the order and discipline of the monastery into the church at large, to provide the whole church with a type of rule that flowed out of the scripture and which led the baptized deeper into it. But what about the laity? It is true that the reforming actions of the council focused on the reform of the clergy, but this is to be expected. The council was a meeting of the clerical order after all, but all of it was ultimately about the laity. The reform of the monasteries had been above all else about the reform of the monks, but the monastery was understood as a microcosm of the whole world, the whole church. 
The perfection sought by the monks was a perfection that was nothing else than the perfection that was, that was to be sought by all of humanity. The movement from the monasteries to the church as a whole was motivated by the drive to move this movement out into the entire church, to bring all of the faithful up the ladder of ascent. This is what the reform of the clergy was all about. But the laity had been integral to the reform movement from the beginning. It had been the laity that had founded the thousands of monasteries. It had been the laity that had offered their sons and daughters to the reforming houses. And it had been the laity that had pushed the reforming movement forward. The movement was not a top-down imposition of the clergy. Rather, the Gregorian reforms were as much motivated by the laity who increasingly demanded that their clergy pursue perfection, that they might preach to them the word of God and administer them to them the sacraments. This demand had sometimes even become violent as the laity forcibly removed clerics who they believed to be corrupt and immoral. The establishment and spread of the regular canons was as motivated by the laity's demand for the proper pastoral, for proper pastoral care that they might share in the ascent toward perfection as it was by the clergy's desire for their own perfection. Increasingly, laity expected their priests to be reformed priests. They would not accept less. What is more, the cities that the laity built in precisely this period revolved around the cathedral and its liturgical life. From birth until death, the sacraments were integrated into their, into their lives, and the rhythm of the liturgy communicated to the city through the tolling of church bells was the very rhythm, the clock and calendar of the city by which the city lived. The Dominican historian Augustine Thompson has aptly referred to them as cities of God, evoking St. Augustine's notion of the entire church. Like the monastery and the cathedral, these cities of the laity were a microcosm for the church as a whole. The laity demanded pastoral care from the clergy, and the clerical church responded. The universities produced not only preachers, but developed a whole new field of theology that we would call moral theology. And the scholars produced manuals and handbooks to help the clergy minister to the people. They developed the theology necessary to understand how it might be that not only monks, but bakers, blacksmiths, blacksmiths peasants, and even knights could progress toward perfection. This was the training that in, that in addition to the study of scripture, Lateran IV required of priests. It was during this period that the, that the diocese of Christendom were divided up into chapels and parishes that the laity might always have access to preaching and to the sacraments. And the laity developed their own devotions that flowed out of the monasteries. For example, the monks prayed the 150 Psalms in the divine office as a part of the meditative movement into the tropological and onto the anagogical. The laity developed similar devotions appropriate to their station and level of education. Rather than the Psalms, they recited Hail Marys and Our Fathers, prayers that all of them had memorized, devotions that would develop into the rosary as we know it. The laity's Eucharistic devotion matched that of the monks and the clergy, if not even exceeding it. It was the laity who at this time began to kneel at the consecration, a devotion that was resisted by the clergy at first, but which the laity would not surrender until finally the clergy themselves adopted it. The laity were not tangential to the reform, to the movement of reform. In fact, they were often its vanguard. The Franciscans, for example, were at this time a lay movement that had developed out of the lay penitential movements and the lay pursuit of spiritual perfection in the Italian cities. It was only later in the 13th century that they would move in the direction of clericalization. All of this is not to say that the laity were somehow the same as the clergy. In our world, we are obsessed with sameness. We breathe democracy and egalitarianism and have a difficult time getting past notion, the notion that equal dignity always manifests itself in identical stations and identical forms of life. The, the Christians at the time of Lateran IV didn't share our hangups. Rather, they divided the church into different orders. In the early, earlier Middle Ages, society had been divided into those who prayed, the monks, those who fought, the nobles, and those who worked, the peasants. But over the course of the reform movement, this scheme lost much of its descriptive and conceptual power. Pope Innocent III, rather, emphasized the divisions between the ordained, the celibate, and the married. In an Easter sermon, Innocent stated that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome represented the three lives, lay, regular, and clerical. 
He stated, the lay life should anoint the feet of Jesus, the regular life, the head, and the clerical life, the body. For the feet of Christ are the poor, the head is the divinity, and the body is the church. So the laity supported the church through the corporal works of mercy, the regulars through prayer, and the clergy through word and example. Each was an expression of the tropological. Each was a form of preaching. Preaching itself was the perfection of the clerical order and was the nourishment of the body. It was both, it was how their interiorization of the word of God poured out into the world. It was how they made him alive and present. Prayer, as we have seen, was how the monks lived their interiorization. The laity, the married, sought interiorization in no less of a real way, even though it expressed itself differently. The laity expressed their turn to the tropological through the construction of a society of charity, a society of care for the poor, of honest work, of the support of the clergy, of the raising of families, and of the defense of Christendom. This was how they made Christ present in the world. This was their version of tropology or their version of preaching, we might even say. This conception of diverse orders reached perfection in the Mass. There were three orders of guests, Pope Innocent tells us, to the wedding feast. The prelates, the continent, and the married. And three types of people participated in the Mass, namely the celebrants, the ministers, and the people who surrounded them. Together to Innocent and the Council Fathers, these orders constituted the body of Christ, and each was capable of perfection in its own way. Their view of society was therefore essentially liturgical. The sacraments, especially the Eucharist, was the point of full convergence. All the, all the orders were oriented ultimately toward Christ, and all of them required the grace of his self-giving that they received through the sacrament. But, but Christ's grace was also poured out onto the orders in special ways. For example, the sacrament of holy orders provided the clergy with the special grace that they needed in order to progress in their way, um, and the sacrament of marriage provided the laity with the grace they needed to do so in their way. Hence, Lateran IV's three canons dealing directly with marriage. The entire sacramental system was about moving all the orders up the ladder of ascent. The last paragraph of Lateran IV's Confession of Faith, the most substantial creed promulgated since Nicaea, reads, There is indeed one universal church of the faithful, outside of which nobody at all, at all is saved, in which Jesus Christ is both priest and sacrifice. His body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine, the bread and wine having been transubstantiated, and this is the famous first, first mention of transubstantiation in a formal document. So the bread and wine having been transubstantiated by God's power into his body and blood, so that in order to achieve this mystery of unity, we receive from God what he received from us. Nobody can affect this sacrament except a priest who has been properly ordained according to the church's keys, which Jesus Christ himself gave to the apostles and their successors. But the sacrament of baptism is, is consecrated in water at the invocation of the undivided trinity, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and brings salvation to both children and adults when it is correctly carried out by anyone in the form laid down by the church. If someone falls into sin after having received baptism, he or she can always be restored through true penance, for not only virgins and the continent, but also married persons find favor with God by right faith and good actions and deserve to attain to eternal blessedness. Universal call to holiness. We can see now, hopefully, the true significance of the church's mandating that all the faithful confess their sins once a year and receive the Eucharist one of the most famous enactments of the council. The entire project of reform rested ultimately on grace. The Eucharist, was, which Innocent tells us was the anagogical Passover, which was a taste of communion with God and so of heaven, was both the goal of reform and it was its source. Without worthy reception of the Eucharist, the whole project of reforming Christendom into a society of faith and charity of moving all the baptized toward the anagogical state of contemplation was hopeless, because it was precisely the anagogical that corresponded to the virtue of hope, and it was precisely the Eucharist which gave the grace to make hope real. 
We can see also the significance of the canons that mandated that the churches be kept immaculate, that the linens, vestments, and vessels used in Mass be clean, that the Eucharist be locked up and treated with profound respect. We can hopefully now see how the many enactments of the Council that have to do um, with the reform of the clergy and with the, ins and with the insistence that they preach and administer the sacraments to the laity and those concerning the laity themselves were expressions of an integrated vision of reality, the vision of the fourfold ascent to God. We see in Lateran IV the attempt to transform this vision, this movement, into a system of governance. We can see that it is the culmination of the Gregorian reform movement that had grown out of the Benedictine reform. Could the world move from the historical, through the allegorical, through the tropological, could the perfection sought in the monastery be translated into a perfection to be sought by the whole world? Could the heavenly liturgy be anticipated here on earth? Pope Innocent III and the fathers of the Fourth Lateran Council certainly thought so. This is what the reform that it promulgated was all about. But execution could be problematic. Next week, I'm going to talk about the sword. I'm going to talk about the complexities of executing this vision of reform in the world of sin. This will cover crusade, heresy, inquisition, excommunication, and all the other controversial things. I will conclude by talking about the doctrine of analogy as promulgated by Lateran IV and how all of this helps us see a world very different than our own, but a world from which we can learn a great deal. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.